The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, it's been just such a wonderful service already. Um, what a powerful testimony of how God is using uh, people in a church like Dr. Young Che to um, just really see the, the bringing together of their faith and their work to just see uh, just an amazing way how God orchestrated not just one person coming to faith, but how he brought in a whole network of people who uh, together ended up coming to such a deep understanding of what God was doing in their lives. Um, this Christmas story is a story about the love of God. And as the famous verse in John's gospel says in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And for this Christmas service, I want to take a look at a particular expression of love. I was listening to this podcast about the future of artificial intelligence, which seems to be on the news all the time right now. Uh, otherwise known as AI, and whether this conversation was about whether we will get to that day when AI can replace, basically, the need for human companionship. Will we, in other words, ever live in a sci-fi world uh, where a digital companion will be actually as comforting uh, as a friendship with an, a person? And the host of this podcast commented on this in a way that really stuck with me. What he said was he believed that AI could never fully replace human relationships because, and this is what he said, to be loved is to be chosen. And a computer can never do that. In other words, AI can only do what we program it to do. It doesn't have any meaningful ability to choose us. And I, I think he put his finger on one of the most essential qualities of love. Because to be loved is to be chosen, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why we long to be loved by somebody else. Because it means that somebody has chosen me to be the object of their affection. John Orberg writes in Love Beyond Reason, to be loved means to be chosen. The sense of being chosen is one of the very best gifts, gifts love bestows on the beloved. It means someone has seen me as a unique person and that someone desires to come closer to me, to be on the same side as I'm on. On the other hand, there is no pain quite like the pain of not being chosen. The day I'm writing this, a 10-year-old has written to Dear Abby, which is an advice column, and it says, about the pain of life on the playground. All of my life, I have been chosen last. That's my problem. Why don't they just hang a sign on me that says reject? Last one pick, last one to pick gets me. There is no gift like being chosen, no pain like rejection. And when a reject is chosen by someone, a life gets changed. Love confers a kind of chosenness on the one who is loved. Love whispers, I choose you. I want to be on your side. 
and for ragged people, for people with misshapen spirits and crooked hearts and lopsided souls, this is life. As Ortberg points out in this quote, there is something so vital and life-giving to be granted this chosen status by somebody else, isn't there? But I think what he also highlights is that this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because in our desire to be chosen, there is also always a risk of being rejected too, isn't there? And I think in the relationships that matter most to us, I think many of us struggle with this question of being chosen by this other person. Think about marriage. At that wedding altar years ago, a couple can think of each other. Well, we chose each other, didn't we? But after everything that we've been through in this marriage, I think it's hard not to wonder about the other person. If you could do it all over again, and after everything you now know about me, would you still choose to be with me? In other words, I know we're not going to get a divorce. I know you're not going anywhere. But do you still choose me with each new day that we have together? Do you still want to be with me? Or is this just the life that you're stuck with? Think about the parent-child relationship and all of the insecurities that run in both directions. The child may wonder, I know you've always wanted to have children, mom and dad, but am I the child that you always thought you would have one day? Or for the parent may wonder to the child, how do you feel about the family that you were born into? Do you wish you had somebody else's parents? Are you happy in this family? There's something known as the Lausanne Movement. And it's historically, arguably, the most influential conference for world missions in the church. The first one was held in 1974 in Lausanne, Switzerland, and that's how it got its name. And it was put together by Billy Graham. And it had arguably to this day the most major impact on how the church does missions than any other gathering in history. The second one took place in 1989 in Manila, Philippines. And then the most recent Congress, which is the one pictured here, was in Cape Town, South Africa in 2010. Well, the fourth Congress is happening next year in Seoul, South Korea. And so I thought I would actually try to attend this one. The problem is you can't just show up. You have to apply as a delegate. And a friend of mine is actually on the planning committee, and he told me, Steve, if you really want to go to this thing, I can get you in, and you can be a delegate. Because out of the entire world, they only pick a few thousand people. But I told him, you know what, I'll just apply on my own, and I'll try my best to become a delegate. And the application form took forever to fill out, and it was crazy. You had to write references. It felt like you were like applying for a job. And basically, they're just trying to figure out, are you worthy enough to be a delegate to this absolutely important gathering? Well, to make a long story short, they didn't find me worthy. <laughs> um, you thought I was going to have good news for you, didn't you, right? 
your pastor is going to Lausanne. No, I'm not. <laughs> they rejected my application. And here's the thing was, you know, uh, it honestly hurt my ego a bit. Because as a medical missionary, I had actually started an HIV AIDS clinic in a region of Kenya that had absolutely no access to this life-saving intervention. And I had helped to start a nursing school that is now training hundreds of nurses to go to the most underserved parts of Africa. And I had spoken at mission conferences. And I had taught the perspectives course. And I even put together a mission Bible study as a sophomore in college that I taught for over a decade. But I guess all of that was not enough to qualify me as a delegate for Lausanne. And here's the thing that really gets me, is my brother was a delegate in Cape Town, 2010. <laughs> and he's somewhere in this picture. <laughs> he's there. And here's the thing. Don't get me wrong, I love my brother to death, and I have the deepest respect for him, but he was never even ever a missionary. <laughs> and he went in 2010. And that's messed up, isn't it? Listen, why am I sharing this story with you? I'm sharing it because I think there is a similar confusion when it comes to the Christmas story. Because for us, these characters in this story are so familiar about the first Christmas. But what you have to understand is that the original Jewish audience would have been struck by how odd this cast of characters actually was. That God would assemble for the story of the birth of his son. The first two that come into the picture in Luke's gospel are two women named Elizabeth and Mary, both of whom would have never imagined that they would be pregnant in that moment, but both were. And the first Elizabeth couldn't imagine she was pregnant because she was really old and she was infertile. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 7 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. It's interesting, when Elizabeth will reach five months into her pregnancy, she will make this very painful statement. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Why did she say my disgrace? Because in those days, a woman's worth was determined by her ability to bear children. And so this old, childless woman was chosen by God brought into the very heart of the story of Jesus by giving birth to John the Baptist, who would make a way for Jesus. But the other pregnancy is even more miraculous than this one, isn't it? In Luke chapter 1, 26 to 31, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. So the second person, a little girl, a young girl, teenage girl, poor and equally poor is the man she's engaged to, who is a carpenter of a village so obscure called Nazareth, that it is never once mentioned in the Old Testament. What an unlikely person that God would choose to become the mother of his son. And on the day of Jesus' birth, God reveals that birth to another group of people, a group of shepherds outside the town of Bethlehem. In chapter 2, verse 8 to 12 of Luke's gospel, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord, glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. I've often heard it said in Christmas messages that shepherds in those days were really bad people. They had horrible reputations, similarly viewed in the category as criminals and thieves and other bad people. To be honest, I, I don't think there's really strong evidence that's directly linkable historically to these kind of statements. But I think what we could say about shepherds in those days was they, they were not a highly respected group of people. They were minimum age workers that lived on the margins of society. And they were really people that, people that others would easily disregard and discount. And yet God chose these men to be the ones to whom he revealed the birth of his son. And then he would reveal it to probably the most startling group, which is a group known as the Magi. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The, these magi are what we believe to be foreigners living in a pagan country, probably in the area of Babylon, who are like magicians, where they, were, they practiced magical arts and they were into astrology, reading the patterns in the stars to figure out and predict the future and what was happening in their times. And it's interesting because the Bible actually gives clear command not to get involved with astrology. And yet, God will use a star to direct these pagan magicians to, to Bethlehem to be able to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so you look at this cast of characters, an elderly, infertile woman, a poor teenage girl from Nazareth, minimum wage workers like these shepherds, and a group of foreigners who are magicians and astrologers 
And I don't think this would be, in anybody's mind, the kind of people that God would assemble to celebrate and participate in the birth of his son. I mean, where are all the religious leaders? Where are the politicians, the other important people that you would expect to be a part of a story as important as the birth of God's son? It would be like you coming to me after this message excitedly and saying, you know what, Pastor Steve? I'm going to Korea. (laughs) I'm going to be a delegate at Lausanne, you know? And in my mind, I'd be like, oh, uh, that too is messed up, isn't it? Like, like, you shouldn't go to Lausanne. I should go to Lausanne, you know? There are important people who should do important things, and there are forgettable people who should do forgettable. Now, listen, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. I hope you know that, right? But what this Christmas story is saying to us is it's as if God reached to the corners of society and found the people that are most easily dismissible and forgotten, and he made them at the center of the story. And I think God chose the most unlikely people, the poor, the discarded, the marginalized, the foreigners, to show us that the message of Christmas is for everyone, even the most unlikely among us. No one is outside the reach of God's love. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 to 13 says, uh, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There are these passages in the Bible that talk about how God chooses us and concepts like predestination. And I think the truth is it makes a lot of us really uncomfortable because the second we talk about concepts like predestination or talk about being chosen, it immediately makes us think that this is an act of exclusion. This is God picking a few and rejecting everyone else. But what I want to say is I think we are misunderstanding the point of teachings like this in the Bible when it talks about God choosing because the point of those passages is never to make some kind of philosophical argument about the nature of free will versus the fatalism of God deciding everything for us. Whenever the Bible talks about choosing us, the emphasis is always in the opposite direction, not of exclusion, but of inclusion, of saying even those who feel like they don't belong as a part of God's family are given an invitation to be part of his family. Paul is writing this letter to Gentile believers who are following Jesus. And he says, truthfully, you were once not part of this family, but because of God's love for you, you are now included in his family. When Abraham was called by God to be the father of a great nation called Israel, it was not to exclude all the other nations, but to bless them. And so what's interesting is that years after this promise to Abraham, that he will have a child, and through that child will be born an entire nation. Years after that promise, Sarah still couldn't conceive. And so Sarah hatches this plan to speed things along and give God a hand and basically gives Abraham her Egyptian slave girl. And I'm going to be careful with my words because I know this is a family service. But at the end of the day, this girl, this, this slave girl, Hagar, 
will end up having a child, a son. But the sad thing is once that son is born, it's pretty clear that this is not what God intended. It is very clear that this was not what God meant when he said, I will bless you with a son, and through him will be the promise of a nation. And in fact, Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar, and she begins to mistreat her slave girl. And it becomes so bad for Hagar that she eventually runs away from home. And she ends up in the desert with her infant child. Probably went there just to die. And Hagar is a side story. In fact, you could even say that Hagar and her baby are a shameful and embarrassing part of Abraham and Sarah's story that frankly we wish we could sweep under the rug. It's the messiness and ugly dark side of the story. Just let her go to the desert with her baby and just let her fade away into history as a mistake that never should have happened. But here's the thing, was that God would pursue Hagar into the desert, letting her know that she was not forgotten by him. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 10 through 11, the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Even Hagar and her child have a part in God's story. They are not forgotten and discarded by him. And so I, as I close the message this morning for this Christmas service, the people that I really want to talk to who are here in the service are the ones that may wonder, have you ever felt like you don't belong in God's story? Listen, I suspect some of you are here and loving every minute of this. And to be in church on a Christmas service feels like being at home and singing these Christmas carols may be very nostalgic for you, reminding you of earlier years growing up in the church. And that's so wonderful, and I'm so glad you're here. But I also suspect that there are some of you who are here because it's Christmas, and it feels like the right thing to do is to be at church. But maybe, frankly, just being here makes you feel pretty uncomfortable. And maybe, frankly, you're really not here for yourself, but you're here for somebody else's sake. Somebody dragged you here. <laughs> Somebody asked you to be here. And so you felt obligated. And maybe you know enough about church and you know enough about church culture that one thing you know is you've never felt comfortable in church. I want to actually confess something that may seem strange, sound very strange to you, but I know I'm a pastor, but in many ways I feel like I can empathize with those feelings. Because as much as I've grown up all my life in the church, there are just aspects to church culture that even for me have not always been easy for me to blend in with. And I really know that when I visit another church and I'm not the pastor and I'm just an anonymous member in the congregation and sometimes I just don't know what to do with myself. I just feel so awkward and I dread the fellowship time when I have to go out there and meet strangers. Or maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe you've been hurt by the church or specific Christians. 
And you don't know how to disentangle those negative experiences with your view of God. And you're not sure what to think of God in light of the past. Or maybe, frankly, you've done things that you're ashamed of and that you're pretty convinced that God could not accept you the way you are and with the history that you carry. And I think the message of Christmas is that everyone is invited to enter into this story, no matter how much you may feel like an outsider to that story. One of the greatest defenders of the faith in the previous generation was a man named C.S. Lewis. And it's interesting when he talks about his beginnings coming to faith, he describes himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. And it's the most uninspiring conversion story you will ever read. Because in his book, Surprised by Joy, this is how he honestly talked about his conversion experience when he was in college. Uh, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night. Actually, I think he was a, he was a professor by then. Uh, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about God. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But what can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. So that's his conversion story, was he came into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming, not wanting to do this, because I think he looked at other Christians, and he said, I don't identify with these people. This is not my tribe. I'm not like these people. And yet he couldn't resist the pull of God on his life. And I think that conversion of Lewis captures the Christmas story that is happening here. The Apostle Paul's testimony is even more dramatic. He actively sought to destroy the church, hunting down and killing Christians before he came to faith. And yet what God would do is say that even a murderer like Paul had a place in his story. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16 says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The testimony of every person that comes to Jesus is that no one is outside the reach of the love of God. Let's pray.